Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Our honored guest this evening is Phil Cousineau. He's an award-winning writer and filmmaker, teacher and editor, lecturer, world traveler, storyteller, and TV host. His fascination with the art, literature, and history of culture has taken him from Michigan to Marrakesh, Iceland to the Amazon, in a worldwide search for what the ancients called the soul of the world. With more than 35 books translated into more than 10 languages and 15 script writing credits to his name, the omnipresent influence of myth in modern life is a thread that runs through all of his work. His screenwriting credits in films have won more than 35 international awards. He is co-writer and host of Global Spirit and has also appeared on CNN, the Discovery Channel, and more. He's been featured in Time, Newsweek, and the New York Times. Cousineau has also appeared alongside mentors Joseph Campbell and Houston Smith. Our distinguished guest is a former fellow of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and former board member of Sacred Sites International Foundation. He is a visiting faculty member of the Sophia Center at Holy Names University and is on the faculty of the annual book passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference. His 35 books include Stoking the Creative Fires, Once and Future Myths, The Hero's Journey, Word Catcher, The Oldest Story in the World, The Book of Rhodes, and The Accidental Aphorist. Today, Phil Cousineau is in conversation with Banyan Books about his now classic book, first published in 1998, The Art of Pilgrimage, The Seeker's Guide, to making travel sacred. This new version is updated with a new preface by the author. The Art of Pilgrimage is a travel guide full of remarkable stories from famous travelers, poets, and modern day pilgrims. Perfect for the mindful traveler who longs for something beyond diversion and escape. Irish poet, philosopher, and pilgrim, John O'Donohue said this, of all the books I've ever read about pilgrimage, this is the most poetic, personal, and timely. 
To learn more about our guest and his work, please visit his website, philcousineau.net. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for such a splendid introduction. I hope I can live up to it tonight. I have no doubt that you will. So obviously uh, books have played a big part in your life. And since we're a bookstore, I thought it might be suitable that we start with that. And I'd like to quote uh, something from your book, The Art of Pilgrimage, where you talk about a friend of yours named George Whitman. He's the owner of Shakespeare and Company Bookstore in Paris. And he says, people long for the light. And that's what the books in my store do. They shed light in a time of darkness. That's why a bookstore is the place where heaven and earth meet. Can you tell us a bit about your relationship with books over the years? <laughs> what a wonderful opening question. Yes, of course. I grew up in a, a house of books and baseball <laughs> just outside Detroit. So if I wasn't reading, I was playing ball. If I wasn't going to the library to check out all the books about baseball and Detroit teams, I was checking out the books about uh, science fiction and yet hiding them a bit because I was a jock and most jocks don't read and most readers don't play ball. So I, I've always had this kind of uh, bittersweet relationship with the two. And yet, no doubt, it was my father's influence who had uh, one entire wall of our living room in the house that we grew up in devoted to heritage edition books. And we read these books out loud as a family Thursday, Friday, sometimes Saturday nights. My uh, brother and sister and I and my mother and my father, we would each read a page a piece. And if there were words that we didn't understand, even as kids, we would stop and we would admit it, which is a very good thing to do, even for adult readers. <laughs> a little free piece of advice there. Go to your local dictionary. <laughs> and my dad would point to the, the old Th Thorndike a Barnhart dictionary in the corner, which was as big as a wheel stop for a 747. And he would say, go look it up. That's why I bought it. And that got into me. It was the love, but it was also the respect of words, the respect for stories. And then he had a second half of this kind of self-evolved pedagogy, which was if we read something like Moby Dick, which would take maybe a year, of course, it was such a long book, we would then get into the family Ford, since he worked for Ford in Detroit, and we would drive, let's say, clear out to the coast, to Massachusetts, to visit Melville's house. So you see there's this double-bladed passion that got into me. First, the primacy of words and stories, and then going and seeing a place with my own eyes. That is what I think I've lived out all these years. So I began writing at 16, growing up in Detroit. I was a stringer for newspapers all around Detroit. After I studied journalism at the, U, at U, the University of Detroit, went off to Europe and eventually got to know and live in Paris where I met the legendary owner of Shakespeare and Company, George Whitman, who after I led a, a tour, one of my literary tours that I'm still leading, hope to lead some next year, invited me to stay on as one of the writers in residence. I stayed on for, I think it was seven months. And every day that I would walk out, I would wake up knowing Henry Miller 
had slept in that same bed. Anis Nin, uh, Lawrence Durrell, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac. This was heady company for me. And I, I loved reaching back. Well, I remember one time reaching behind me and pulling out <clears throat> a volume about this thick. It was a first edition of James Joyce's Ulysses, <clears throat> which I later learned was worth $2 million. So I'm in a world <laughs> that honored, venerated, and encouraged books. I would go downstairs to the bookstore when it opened every, every uh, day at 10 a.m. And here is a kind of parable for all of you who love your local independent bookstore. George himself, George Whitman, sat like a sea captain in the front of the bookstore. And he would watch and he would measure people who came in through the front door. And I watched him do this hundreds of times. He would think to himself, what does she need to read? And then he would get up from his seat and he would grab somebody, affectionately of course, and lead them to maybe the beat poets or the French poets, the French writers, uh, the, the history of France. He deeply, deeply believed as I do, and I think you do in, in Banyan Bookstore, that books are good for the soul. What's that old, old Roman phrase, uh, a house without a book? A house without books is like a body without a soul. And I've come to learn that and loved this life where I am now writing things that other people want to read. And yet what I do with all the books, including this new edition of, of The Art of Pilgrimage, is that I don't want people to stop even with my own books. As grateful as I am that you would read this, that some of your listeners or viewers tonight what I want you to do is keep going. Read the people that I read to enable to read, to write this book. That's a lesson I learned from the great mythologist, Joseph Campbell. When I once asked him, so Joe, how did you learn all this about comparative myth, comparative literature, and so on? He said, I would pick one writer that I deeply, profoundly loved, that I couldn't live without. Uh, it was Proust for a while. It was Thomas Mann, of course, Carl Jung, the, the great Greek poets. And then he said, I would read everything that those writers had read. And then here comes the sticker, the, the, the wonderful line. If you establish a kind of reading rhythm, you will come back to your own original voice. That's what I want to, to offer people. That it's, This isn't about hero worship. It's not even about book worship. I'm sure there's a good Greek word for that. <laughs> it's about finding our own voice by being encouraged by the most articulate voices who have come before us. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Now, Joseph Campbell, who you just mentioned, was a mentor in your life. And the, the structure of this book, The Art of Pilgrimage, is partially based on his hero's journey but there's so much more to it. Can you talk about how that influenced the book? Well, thank you, yes. I had been writing on my own when I was living in Berkeley, just across the bay from where I am now in, in San Francisco, and studying with a man, Kenneth Cohen, who had worked with Alan Watts, one of the, the, the first ambassadors of Buddhism, bringing Buddhism into America. So that was a thrill, that was a kind of first experience of six degrees of separation. And one day he asked me, and this is something I encourage everybody who is watching and listening tonight. He actually asked me, so Phil, uh, who are you reading now? This used to be 
a common question. It used to forge and then cement friendships because you can get below the surface conversations. Because if you tell somebody, you reveal what you're reading, you're, you're exposing a part of your heart. This is, I need to grow here, so I'm reading this. And so I'm telling uh, Kenneth Cohen, I'm reading some myth, I'm reading some uh, classic literature, some psychology, some poetry, and he just stopped me. And he said, you can save yourself a lot of time if you just read a little Joseph Campbell. <laughs> I said, Who's that? <laughs> and I remember when he told me that this guy, he's been out in the vanguard doing what you want to do. You know what? That's the moment, what I call the moment of the mentor. When a voice appears, looks you in the eye and says, it's wonderful that you've come this far, that you're revealing your deepest yearnings, but there are people, souls, spirits out there who can help you. So I began, uh, I worked, worked with Campbell for about eight years, uh, co-wrote the movie about him, The Hero's Journey, which is still being shown in film schools, anthropology schools all around the world. And that became the subject of my first book. So for a few years, I went around the world. I probably gave 500 presentations on Joe in which the, the classic idea of the hero's journey is, is that there is a crisis in your life and you need to make a change. Remember the famous line by Rilke, you must change your life. That, in a sense, is a harbinger for the hero's journey, the creative journey, and the pilgrim's journey. Uh, or as Jim Morrison of The Doors used to say, something's wrong, something's not quite right. <laughs> you remember that song? Yes. So that whole rhythm of somebody who's, whose life is on hold or in a crisis, and so you need to go on a journey that will deepen you, even change you, but it's counterclockwise it's not clockwise that burrowed itself into me so that when one night in uh, 1996 i saw this bullet point as i used to call them in the new york times travel section that said uh in four years by the year 2000 travel is going to overtake the armaments industry as the biggest business in the world and immediately i know a i know a metaphor when i hear one or see one like Coleridge, I'm a scavenger after good metaphors, right? So I jumped on that. And of course, being a writer and a journalist, I asked, why? And I found out by reading many sources that there had been an upsurge, an unexpected uptick in pilgrimage, uh, sacred, going to Santiago de Compostela, Notre Dame, uh, Rome, all the way to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Uh, Mecca, Medina, but pilgrimages all around the world to sacred sites, as well as what I began to find out, secular pilgrimages, going to the home of uh, Ernest Hemingway, which I did a few years ago in Cuba, going to the home of Anna Akhmatova, the great poet, the only person that Stalin, the historians tell us, was actually afraid of, was a woman poet. I had to see her house. Who was this? So I began doing some writing and the, the book just happened in something like six months because I felt like I had put my finger on the pulse of something. Travel, which we've had since uh, 10,000 years of, of registered travel, but something was changing. And my take on it, which I expand on in the third edition here with my new preface, is that in the late... 1990s and again now because of the pandemic 
there was a desperate search for meaning. I feel that travel had become, by the late 90s, when I started writing The Art of Pilgrimage, cheaper, safer than ever before in human history. And that's saying a great deal. There's a lot of reasons for this, but it was easier for even middle-class people. You didn't have to be wealthy anymore. But travel was becoming so easy, it was becoming predictable. And people, I would hear this going to so-called famous sites, but also rarely visited sites. There was so much, what I detected was disappointment because people didn't know where they were. Didn't know anything about, let's say, the Borobudur, that magnificent temple in Java. They didn't know what they were looking at if they were in Ethiopia, looking at those underground temples. So in a burst of imagination, you might say, I thought I would write a book, not just about traditional, sacred, and I'm afraid to say pious pilgrimage. And my picture of that is uh, medieval monks chanting on their way to Rome, chanting Gregorian chant, right, and trying to erase sins from their lives. But instead, make the book address something rather existential, which is the need, the cry, the creed de cur for more meaning in our travels, so that virtually any kind of journey, you could be going home for a Thanksgiving dinner, or you could go to a famous site, an, uh, Greek ruins in ancient Greece. But my notion is if we approach all of our travels with respect and reverence, we go with a heightened sense of attention, like a great photographer or an alert poet, we can change our lives by traveling. Yes, thank you. And um, one of the things that, that you, um, you focus on as a way to, you, you give many tools and practices that people can use to make their travel more sacred, to be more present in their travels, to be more sensitive. One of the things that really reminded me of my childhood travels with my parents was this idea of sometimes either sacred reading in the morning, like you wake up in the hotel and you, you open a book and reading something like uh, that uh, is from that area, a poet or an artist or a story that comes from that place. And then taking that in your mind and heart out with you as you travel. For my family, for instance, we read uh, Irving Stone's The Agony and the Ecstasy about Michelangelo when we were in Florence when I was a kid. And so I, I, it reminded me of that. Can you speak to this practice a little bit? Yes, uh, thank you for, for bringing that up because there is one school of travel. And remember, I, I, I perform, I read at, I teach in, in travel conferences all around the world. And I often encounter this, this, this notion that uh, to, to play with the words, it, it's better to travel as a virgin to these sites with no impressions. You've never been violated by someone else's ideas. And I don't get that. I find that's very narcissistic to spend all the time and trouble to go halfway around the world to a site and not know anything about it, or just the superficial first layer, the uh, chamber of commerce view of the site, where you go to the five predictable, predictable places. Instead, you, you don't have to... Uh, exhaust your local librarian, but if you only chose one book 
by someone of the, the period where you're from. I often think it's either a biography, let's say a Proust, you're going to Paris, or a book of poems, because our greatest poets have condensed and compressed and moved in slowly, slowly telescoping, as it were, into the soul of their own home, the soul of the culture. So I'm filming in Chile a few years ago, and I'm just about to leave the house, and, I, and I'm thinking, oh, I, I haven't done this. I, I haven't followed up on my own advice. What should I grab? And then I'm thinking, Chile, Chile, Chile. It's Pablo Neruda, one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. So I grabbed a book of his odes, uh, his love poetry. And every day that I was in Chile, when I woke up in the morning before we went out to breakfast and when we were shooting around the country filming, I read a poem by Neruda and it worked. It just, it turned my head in, in such a way that I began to look for the poetry in the everyday world. That's what a good poem will do. A good book of history will help. It helps to know something about Napoleon if you're going to France. Uh, the, the, the lyrical poets in Greece. I like my, my friend Houston Smith, who is arguably the greatest historian of religion in the 20th century. He won, once described this practice as a way to take on the, uh, the amount of influence, good and bad, that can happen when you wake up in that foreign climate and you turn on CNN or your news of choice or the local news, preferably, that if you begin the day with war and famine and plague, local problems, those ideas will put a cloud over your entire day. Now, it doesn't mean you avoid those because I think we all need to look for the dark side of a culture to find the entire aspect of it. But it can overshadow your entire day if you begin with only the prosaic, only the news. So picking out a book, uh, Pico Iyer, one of the great travel writers in the world, uh, Rebecca Solnit, who, walk, who writes so beautifully about walking, the virtues of walking. <laughs> you pick up something like that and you start to think, there, there's more than meets the eye. And the last element is it's humbling. If you're going to Hungary, you're going to Budapest, you can't possibly know everything about it. So be humble for a moment. This, uh, this is what I think of as the pilgrim's mood, where you can either go as I'm the American or I'm the European, I'm the representative of Western civilization, which is so head bulging. But if you just go in and say, I'm a stranger in a strange land. And I want to read something that will reveal some of the soul of the place. The other side of that then is the moment you walk downstairs to have breakfast, you talk to the concierge, you, you leave the country inn, the B&B &B or the hotel, you begin to ask questions. Even if you think you know the answer, somebody on the street, well, post-COVID, let's hope this is possible, you go to a cafe, where's the greatest bookstore? You, you go to a restaurant, you say, can you recommend, or where's your favorite place to hear music? Live, local, traditional music. Slowly, slowly, and that is the, the deep purpose of this book, the soul of the place will open itself to you. You're... Your, your show, Global Spirit, you call it an internal travel show. 
which reminds me of what you're talking about here. Can you speak to this concept of, I mean, we're on an outward trip, an outward pilgrimage, but it's in this internal journey that we're on. Yes, that's inspired by one of John Muir's wonderful reflections when he walked from the East Coast clear across the country out here to California. And I believe he was in Yosemite in which he describes in, in one of his journals that every day I thought I was going out, let's say to visit the, the redwoods, the, the beautiful trees. But then he adds, I was really going in. And that becomes one of the leitmotifs of this style of travel pilgrimage in which, of course, you are visiting the outside world, but the pilgrim isn't just about accumulating miles or stamps in the passport or street cred back home because you've been to Bali or even the accumulation of uh, a podcast that you might do while you're traveling. Instead, the pilgrim is concerned about something that's wrong, something's not quite right, something needs a little adjustment inside. So if you were traveling with the inner eye, the third eye, as it's called in some traditions, you will see the soul or the spirit of the place rather than fall for the pretense of the cliche that the French are this way, the Germans are this way, the English are this way, or when they come here, oh, look at those Americans. This, is, this gives rise to cliche behavior, cliche comments. Opposite of that is Mark Twain's now famous reflection that travel is the death of prejudice. I think what he meant, <laughs> if he were to expand on that a little bit in his rapscallion way, one of his favorite words, was that informed travel, respectful travel. And travel, one other thing that I would want to add to that that makes this possible is a simple shift of language inside. I've noticed over the years that th there's a, a use of a certain English verb that comes in again and again and again when we talk about travel. We say we take a trip, we take a photograph, and then while we're there at the place of our heart's desire, we take a souvenir. Often you'll hear, if you spend time, you li live in some of these places, like I've lived in the Philippines, Ireland, Greece, Paris. If I love a place, I will try to stay there and ex extend time. And then the locals will open up and they'll say, oh, when we see you Yanks coming, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, th this guy's on the take. So you notice that word that keeps coming back again and again. That comes from a spirit of entitlement, that you are special. The, the English and Spain, the Germans and Greece, the Americans everywhere, frankly. <laughs> so instead, if you just turn that around, you begin to turn your mind around and your behavior, even your body language. When you turn into what, I, again, I think of as the pilgrim mood, which is giving. I am going to go, now just take, I'm going to go on this journey, let's say to Bhutan. And while I'm there, rather than I'm just going to take a bunch of photos and then post them in my hotel later that night. The question for a real pilgrim, and this goes back, this is a long, long tradition. What can I give here? What needed? What is needed in the place that I'm going? Medicine? 
when I took my group to uh, Cuba a few years ago, I thought around and then it hit me. The Cubans love baseball. So I put out an email just before we left. If any of you have old baseball equipment, please bring it to Cuba. And then as we drove clear around the island, we stopped and gave baseballs away, a few old high school baseball gloves people still have in their closet. And you see the way you're smiling right now, that's what the Cubans were doing. It's partly a joy to have some new equipment, but it's also something else. It's the unexpected behavior of a tourist, traveler, pilgrim, who's actually giving back. Does that make sense? That we have the possibility to bring about good change when we affect, what, what, because everywhere we go, we're going to affect behavior. It's almost the Heiden, Heisenberg's principle. <laughs> the observer changes the behavior of the subatomic particles. I would argue that travelers affect the behavior. So let's affect it beautifully. What a wonderful thing. That's, that's fantastic. Phil, I mean, we need to talk about it, the, the, the COVID pandemic and how that is affecting travel. And, and I want to know, like, how do you see travel uh, taking form again as things open up? What's the world of travel and pilgrimage going to look like? Thank you. Thank you for raising this all-important question. I am taking some solace in the fact that thousands and thousands of people were taking pilgrimages during some of the world's blackest moments, darkest moments. You think of pilgrims walking from Stockholm or Helsinki, uh, even London, clear across Europe in that great web work of pilgrims' roads during the Middle Ages to go to Rome, Jerusalem, uh, many of the holy sites, Santiago de Compostela, Glastonbury, during the, during the middle of the plague, during the middle of wars, pilgrims have continued to go. So that brings up two things. One is that the urge to readjust ourselves spiritually, to reanimate, revitalize, remember, see all that, the great prefix RE is right at the heart of the mystery of pilgrimage. We are incomplete. We're in a kind of crisis. Our life at home just isn't working anymore. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. This is just life. Life goes from positive to negative and swings back and forth. And throughout human history, there's never been a time or a culture without pilgrimage where those who need to leave home and walk in the footsteps of those that they venerate, respect, honor in some way is a way to recharge ourselves. So that, number one, I think is going to come back full bore once this upcoming fourth wave fades away. We'll need to recharge. And what that's going to do, I like to think, is cut down on the, on the amount of frivolous travel, where you just go because you saw an article in Travel and Leisure magazine, or a friend said, what? you haven't been to the Great Barrier Reef or you haven't been to Bali, there is some social one-upmanship in travel storytelling, right? So in instead, because we most of us have now lost somebody, friend or foe, family member to COVID, 
we have learned about the numbers, the egregious, the soul-crushing numbers of people who have either been infected or have actually passed away. This should cause a great shift in the way that we look at the world in one regard, time. Up until COVID, it was easy to live under the illusion that we had all the time in the world, right? You can't say that anymore. Not if we're thinking, feeling human beings. So my suggestion with this is think about the place, not just that you wanted to go to because it's trendy. Where is the place that you need to go? You feel the difference in that? It's the need of your spirit, the need of the soul. Also, where is there a place on what they, my grandmother used to call <laughs> God's green earth where you might go and make a difference? Join uh, uh, Jim, Jimmy Carter's building team in Georgia or somewhere. Where can you go where you can actually help? You see, that's the shift because pilgrims have always done this. They've taken food, money, medicine to places that were troubled. And the entire world, in, in a way, is troubled right now. I think COVID can, it won't necessarily do this, but it can help us focus on things and people that matter deeply to us. To do what? To recharge ourselves, but also our community. Wonderful. I'm wondering if you can tell us some of the some of the unique or interesting uh, forms of pilgrimage that you've seen outside of the traditional spiritual or religious. You touch on some of these in the book. There's such creative ways that people take pilgrimages. Yes, thank you. It's like a, the Venn diagram. Do you remember that in, in math class where you would take the two circles and the point of overlap is always the most interesting part, right? So in this, if you think of uh, sacred journeys and then secular journeys and you move them across you come into this in interesting area where because I'm out here in the Bay Area in California I know there is a phenomena at least until the pandemic of Japanese tourists flying from Japan all the way to SFO San Francisco getting on a bus and going down to let's say the, uh, uh, the Hewitt Packard garage, where uh, in mythic thinking, the whole computer revolution began. <laughs> they go and they take photos of this now teetering garage that was almost torn down recently, but there was such a hue and cry from all around the world. No, you have to preserve that. Why? That sounds crazy. This is one of the the principles, if you will, of pilgrimage, that when our batteries are running low, when our spirits have been drained, think about all the expressions we have for that, we go back to the beginning of something that deeply, deeply nourishes us. So this could be the, one of the, the what do they call it, the, the, the Wheel Cafe, where some of the, the founders of Silicon Valley began, or it could be the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame. It could be war sites in Vietnam. Or as I learned in one of the thousands of letters that I've gotten on this pilgrimage book, 
where a family of a, a man who was a fighter pilot during World War II and was one of those who dropped bombs on Dresden, if you recall, it's one of the, the most horrible episodes of the war. Most of Dresden burned to the ground because of the firebombing. Apparently, as he was dying, the whole family was reading the Art of Pilgrimage, and they suddenly thought that this would be one thing that their dying father could do to help. It's a kind of act of atonement, as an act of re recharging all of their lives. So they flew to Dresden, and this man who was slowly moving on from this life spent an entire day walking around Dresden offering his hand to people and saying, I was one of the bomber pilots that dropped bombs here. So what's the principle there? Where you go back to a place that is deeply important to your story, your family's story, the story of your community, your people. This is part of the vision quest for American Indians. It's part of the walkabout of Aborigines, Abor Australian Aborigines, where you go back to the power site. Why? Because there's enormous power energy and we can't forget beauty beauty we can't get too dark about this beauty is nearly always one of the attractions for these for these sites and you talk about the the pilgrimage being an initiatory experience one of the stories that was very moving in the book was i think his name was gary rines who's the jewish filmmaker who took a trip to Israel with his daughter and went to the Holocaust Museum there, Yad Vashem. I'm wondering if you could tell us that story. Yes, my dear friend Gary, I uh, co-wrote and co-directed six films on American Indian issues with him. And then sadly enough, he died in a plane crash a few years back. But when I was talking to him about pilgrimage, he practically insisted on telling the story about going back to Jerusalem, but with his daughter, so that she could see with her own eyes what had happened during the Holocaust, which is also to say to feel in her own heart, because it's, it's wonderful to hear the stories of our parents, our mentors, grandparents. But the urgent pilgrimage is to go to the site yourself, to feel it underneath your toes, to feel it in your heart, to feel it in your fingertips. So one of the metaphors that I play with is that at home, we have gone slightly out of touch. And you go to the pilgrimage sites to touch the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, to touch Babe Ruth's bat at the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame, or to touch Jim Morrison's grave at Père Lachaise in Paris, so that you get back in touch. So Gary takes his daughter there, and she has... I, I would argue to say a life-changing experience. Why? This is something that often happens at these pilgrimage sites. And one metaphor is you and I circling all the way back to the beginning. There's a missing part of our story. Our personal story, our family story. In this case, the story of your tribe, the Jewish tribe in this, in this case. For me, it, it's going back to some of those rivers in Canada where my ancestors used to be voyageurs, a, a word that I just love. My great-grandfather, Charlemagne Cousineau, <laughs> uh, he would work the farm from spring till fall and then get into his birch bark canoe and paddle from Sudbury on Lake Nipissing 
all the way up to the Yukon to, to trap Silver Fox and then come back down to Vancouver where you are sitting at this very moment and work in the mines there so that he would earn his fare all the way back home again. And so I've retraced some of those footsteps and that's the Pilgrim notion. This, I want to make sure everyone gets this, this idea. Mm -hmm. It also, it's so humbling, not just to think I am taking this journey, which makes me cool, which makes me worldly, which makes me trendy. But instead, I'm at a time in my life when I need to follow in my grandmother's footsteps. I need to know her story. You feel that? It's, this is going down into emotion and soul and spirit. And for Gary, my, my dear friend, Gary Ryan, he said this was an opportunity to share his story, the story of his people, many of his family who had died during the Holocaust in Europe, to share it with his daughter, and then by extension, her kids later on. And let me add, just add one, one notion to that, that that's part of the, the beauty of this model in which I've also borrowed a wonderful idea from Joe Campbell in The Hero's Journey, and that's the boon. The boon is this, is this terrific, evocative, that double O is important for the whole sound of it. It means a gift. What did you learn on that journey of yours? Did you get any wisdom out of this? Or are you just stamping your passport? The boon is what changes you when you get home again. When your friends, your family look at you and say, uh, Ross, you seem a little different after your trip to Nicaragua and Guatemala. What happened there? It's visible. People notice our voice changes, our facial muscles begin to change. Even the way that we walk, something has shifted inside. The big question then is what? Uh, I think we have grown a little bit wiser on a pilgrimage and not necessarily on a trip that's pure tourism. Uh, that's not, I don't want to pit them against each other, but the pilgrimage is the journey that you can't, can't take. You feel that double negative in there? <laughs> the one you can't, can't take. And I think that's what's going to rise to the surface for so many of us who are considering travel in the post-pandemic year. Where's the place that you can't, can't take your journey to or enjoy in these worlds? I hope that helps. It does, it does. Thank you so much. You know, we have, we have a ton of questions coming in here from the audience, so I, maybe we can get to some of those if you're open to it. Absolutely. Okay, great. There's a, the first one's from Austin. This is a really cool question. Um, is anyone making a documentary about Houston Smith's life? If you were taking a pilgrimage that honored Houston, where would you go? Thanks, Austin. <laughs> what a great question. Yes, there is some movement among those of us who worked with him for so many years. And uh, the man, John Monday, who is in charge of the Houston Smith website. Also the people in Syracuse who now have his archives because he is arguably the one scholar who began almost in a pilgrim mood now that I think about it to compare and contrast up until Houston in the early 1950s if you studied religion you studied the culture of spirituality in one era versus another you were supposed to specialize just in one. 
stay in your lane, as the cliche goes now. But Houston had traveled so often, as he once told me, Phil, <laughs> I've girdled the globe 12 times. How often have you girdled the globe? <laughs> so I hope I'm getting his cadence there. <laughs> and, but out of all those travels in those in all the study he did before he traveled around the world, he began to see, as he told me, more correspondences than differences. And this is exactly the language that his friend and my friend Joe Campbell used when he described encountering mythology all around the world. That he was all up until Campbell, you were supposed to stay studying one people, maybe the Aborigines, maybe the Greeks or the Irish. But Joe and Houston are coming along at a cultural time in the 50s and 60s in which you say just focusing on differences leads to war. It often demonizes the other. So, yes, there are there is talk about a, a film about the great Houston. And if somebody wants to email me about that, then I can keep you in the loop about that. He was one of the, the great inspirations. He writes the introduction to the book, which is one of the, or the forward to the book, which is one of the great honors of my life. Yeah, yeah. And it's a wonderful forward. Um, if people do want to get a hold of you, should they go to your website or? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So philcousineau.net. And just a little feedback from the audience here. There's someone, uh, Timothy says, your book kicked off a real transformation of my life. And I wanted to express my gratitude to you for writing it. Thank you, Phil. Well, thank you. Thank you, Timothy, wherever you are. Uh, one, one quick note on that. I think... I allowed myself when I was writing this in 1996 to 98 to allow something profoundly personal in me to enter the book while still trying to be a, a trustworthy scholar about it. And that is my personal passion for what can happen to a single person if he or she opens the heart. So I tell stories about my father. I tell stories about my brother, my mom, some dear friends along the way. I'm very generous in citing uh, a whole Alexandria library worth of other travelers in there. So it's not just about me. And what I was trying to really convey and spark in the reader was if I travel, not just as a tourist, but as something else, someone who is closer to the ancient and venerable idea of the pilgrim, something could shift in me. Something could change. Uh, that great combustible line by the German poet Rilke is really at the heart of the book. When Rilke finds himself in the Paris Museum looking at this, or at the zoo and looking at this panther and the line that comes to him, you must change your life. That's at the heart of really traveling deeply. You're on the island of Crete and someone invites you to a group of bazooki players and you're tired and you're exhausted and you just want to go back to the hotel room. But the offer, the, the earnestness in the voice of that taverna owner says, I should trust this moment. I should seize the moment. 
and then you go and you you watch them uh, dancing on on the shore like Zorba, and you hear maybe, as I did once, fifteen bazooki players playing on the shore, the southern shore of Crete, as the full moon was rising. Something comes in, and what is it? Sometimes I hate to use the word sacred here, so I like to use the word numinous. Something numinous breaks through everyday life. And the, the oldest definition of the numinous is the knot of the gods. And the way that I like to read that is where the gods or the goddesses are winking at us. Hey, Ross, you are exactly where you need to be right now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Those are such wonderful experiences. Uh, there's a there's a cool question from Will, who I'm curious to hear this too, and I wonder if it's Greece, but he says, what pilgrimage have you repeated most often and why? Wow. There are a, a few, but I see where I want to be uh, careful and respectful of the time. The one I, I may have done the most is to Ireland and then on the boat out to the Aran Islands, which is the farthest reaches of Western Europe, the farthest reaches of Western civilization. And when I'm on, um, on Inish Moor, I take my friends who are joining me on one of my pilgrimages, uh, sponsored by Sacred Earth Journeys, of course, right there in Vancouver, okay? My friend Helen Tomei there helps me organize all these. And then the, the, the coup de grace, uh, we've been traveling for six or seven days. We go out to the islands and I want to take them because of my love of Irish culture, my love of Celtic mythology out to the, the edges of the island, which is an old uh, Irish fort, about 6,000, maybe 6,500 years old called Dunangus in honor of the Celtic god Angus. And we do, it's a little risky but there's no no epiphany without taking a risk, right? So what we do is we get down on our bellies and we crawl to the edge of this cliff, which is a 300-foot drop down to the Atlantic, the next stop being probably Fenway Park in Boston. And what, what I encourage people to do, and this is one of the aspects of pilgrimage that's important, you need some ritual and ceremony built in. Otherwise, nothing happens. Without some ritual, ceremony, sacred reading, we are very prey to being voyeurs. That is the hidden danger, I would say, the dark side of tourism, where we only look and we don't touch, we don't see, or, or we don't feel anything. So I bring my, sometimes if I'm traveling on my own, I'll do this, or if I'm with a group, we crawl out to the edge and we ask a simple primal question. What do you need to let go of? Because you're sitting there looking down at the ocean, a 300-foot drop. And that has become a kind of uh, ritual for me, right? I think back of my life over the previous year. Uh, what do I need to let go of? Uh, anger, certain friends, certain projects I need to drop. These kinds of primal questions are really what fuel a, a truly sacred journey. So I go out to the Aran Islands every time. If I'm in uh, Greece, I will go to these beaches I described in Crete. Uh, oh, the other one, 
because we're talking about bookstores and I want to honor Banyan Books and I want to encourage everybody at home, wherever you are, to champion, not just visit, but champion your local bookstore. So yes, without them, uh, we're, we're just we're just a shell of a people. Yes. So when I'm in Dublin, I always go to what's called the long room, <coughs> excuse me, the long room, one of the world's most beautiful pulsating libraries in the world, right in the heart of Trinity College. And if anybody's at home watching the new Netflix app adaptation of the foundation by Isaac Asimov, they cut a half a dozen times back to what you're supposed to think of as the last great cosmic library in the world. They're, they're shooting in Trinity College. I know every inch of that library. So this is, this is a kind of a true confession moment because I'm always writing, right? Books, films, TV shows, and I want to pay homage to the writers who went before me, uh, to honor them in the way that I hope my work is honored, at least the best of it, when it, when it goes out there in the world. Literary pilgrimage is one of the fastest growing forms of pilgrimage in the world where every year the numbers are going up of visitors who go to uh, Emily Dickinson's house in Amherst, Massachusetts, who are visiting uh, the, the house of, who is a Margaret Mitchell, right? Margaret Mitchell, who wrote uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, screenwriters. Now, it's, what, what does this mean? There's a kind of, <laughs> we have to be playful about these things, walking to the, Walking in the footsteps of Ulysses in James Joyce's Dublin. What does that do for us? Is it just empty hero worship? No, there's been a belief that goes back all the way to the Romans, the ancient Greeks, even the Babylonians, that if you visit the place where something was written that you deeply identify with, maybe, just maybe, you'll absorb some of that genius. <laughs> I'm, I'm told within hours of Virgil dying, he was living in a cave in his last months, by the way, just outside of Rome. And we, when he died in the cave, at least the legend goes, and I'll be talking about this when I take a group to Rome next spring, the pilgrims were there within a day. I, I think that's a beautiful thing. It's humble. It's saying your view of the world, because every book is a kind of cosmos, isn't it? It's a, it's a turning of chaos into cosmos. And we want to honor those people who touched us, who moved us. Was it uh, James Baldwin says something so beautiful about this, where he says, I have to paraphrase, but in your darkest moments, that's the time to read, because then you find that you're, you are not alone in your sorrows. See, I'm, I'm paraphrasing with that, but I'm very close to the original because, because what, it, what it means is we care about our storytellers. We honor them out of a sense of humility because we all have different pieces of the puzzle, don't we? That's why we need more than one book. We need a handful of books for a handful of stories. Indeed, indeed. We have time, I think, for, for one more question from the audience. And a couple sure. of people have asked this one. I'm going to give the wording from Janet. 
Uh, Janet asks, can you speak about pilgrimages to retrace the path of ancestors? How can we make this a deep and soulful journey? Well, thank you. That happens to be, Janet, one of my favorite forms. Um, we, I worked with a Winnebago roadman, who, Reuben Snake, who Houston Smith at one time called the Dalai Lama of American Indians. Those are big words, right? Wow. And Reuben once told me that if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up in a place you don't want to be. So it behooves you, behooves me, to know as much of the story about how you individually or your family, your community got here, which means not just once, but a few times, retracing the family footsteps. Why? Because if you have an, what's often called now an identity crisis, who am I? Why am I here? Is there anything that I can possibly give back to the human race? <laughs> am I worthy <laughs> of being alive at this moment in time? I would suggest, and I know Ruben would suggest as well, your doubt is only coming because you somehow lost touch, even momentarily, with your family story. If you know the dignity, the depth of your lineage, the sometimes the, all the, the luck, the fortune it took for them to survive, wars, famines, plagues, uh, distrust, whatever it would be, the more you can learn about that, the more you know, in turn, who you are and know your purpose. So this, is, this has been a big part of my story to retrace the footsteps of the Cousinots across Canada. Uh, one five-day trip as a voyageur with my wife <laughs> along Lake Nipissing, that got into me forever. This, these are my people. And now I've been out there with my oars. But I've also traced the footsteps all the way back to France, where I'm happy, proud to say that the Cousinots come from the area around the Lascaux Caves. And since that is so symbolic, emblematic of the origin of art, the origin of beauty, I would argue the origin of storytelling, those handprints on the walls of the Lascaux Caves are an early form of what you and I are doing right now, an early form of conversation with our distant ancestors and with the future, 37,000 years later, we now know at least in part who these people were. They say, I was here. So following the Cousinos back to the Lascaux Caves or to the, the town where Montaigne, one of my favorite writers, the, the man who invented the word essay, and he went to his round tower in, uh, in, per in Perigueux, in, in the Dordogne. And he spent the last couple decades of his life, as he said, writing attempts at his deepest thoughts. So those are metaphors that got into me early. Following in the footsteps of your people, my people ends up, if we're open-hearted, taking us back to our deepest self.
And this theme of being open-hearted is really at the core of this book. And it's such a beautiful book for everybody. The Art of Pilgrimage, The Seeker's Guide to Making Travel Sacred. We've been speaking with the author, Phil Cousineau, author of this and 35 books, among many other great works in his life. Um, and uh, of course, our website where you can purchase Phil's book, uh, The Art of Pilgrimage, or his other books is banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-M. Hey, there's Y-E-N. There's the old cover. Look at that. Old cover, new cover. Nice. Phil Cousineau, thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. It's been wonderful to be in conversation with you, with, with anybody <laughs> right now, but especially with someone who loves books, loves bookstores, and loves the long conversation of readers and writers. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.